You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi again, and welcome to this special episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm NCQA's Communications Director, Matt Brock. Halfway through 2022, we take a look back to look ahead. We've talked tech and we've talked hospital at home. We've even talked about CCEs and CHWs. And if you don't know what those are, you can find out by listening to past podcasts. On this look back, we spotlight the incredibly important running theme in our show, something we come back to time and time again. Today, we talk equity. We'll highlight three different angles, racial equity, gender equity, and birth equity. In our fight to bridge health disparities, once and for all, NCQA launched its health equity accreditation programs. Our health equity accreditation and health equity accreditation plus programs work as a framework for health organizations to self-evaluate and measure the progress they've made in closing health equity gaps. And worth noting, our team signed on two health systems to help pilot these programs earlier this year, along with the traditional health plans. In episode 71, we heard from representatives of each of these health systems, from Hennepin Health, Dr. Neka Sidestrom, and from Novant Health, Senior Vice President and Chief Health Equity Officer, Dr. Cherie Gregory. There's this, this, this sense of pride and urgency in getting this right. Um, and so, so that that is rewarding. And right now, with all the, the the burnout as a result of the pandemic and the moral injury that's happened as a result of inactions and, and you know personal choice and all those other things that have led to why the pandemic is still as raging as it is, uh, these are little wins for our teams. The, the ability to feel like they're still doing good. They're still working towards why they went into healthcare, which is to help people who are grateful and thankful. And the community, when they see these things, like you were talking about earlier, the, the mammography effort, we too had a mammography effort um, specifically around our American Indian indigenous women population and because it was, it was very clear that we were missing the majority of them. And to have that one person get a mammogram that would have not ordinarily gotten one because the team went through our culturally responsive intervention that led to that yes, is such a huge impact for them. It keeps them wanting to come back the next day. So the, the accreditation for health systems, I think, is so important because it's no longer making it feel like it's an abstract, you know, doesn't really touch people kind of thing. This is it is to show that you're truly touching people and making a difference at the bedside. And I think that that's where the power lies in being a health system, trying to work with NCQA to do this and get this right, is to, to truly show that you can take it from this abstract policy level down to the individual patient level and it be meaningful. And our, and our teams really need it. They need the wins these days. What scares you the most? What encourages you the most? We'll start with you, Dr. Gregory. So what scares me the most is that people always say it's like boiling the ocean. Well, it's all of the oceans. It's all of the water on the earth. It's not just an ocean um, to boil. This is, um, in my lifetime, it will be the hardest thing I do. Um, And as an intensive care unit um, doctor, that's a lot. Um, As a neurointensivist. 
What scares me is we have to get this right. There's no more settling back on maybe we should, maybe it's a nice thing. This is the right thing to do. And as our communities become more diverse every day, if we haven't made ourselves ready to care for diverse populations of people, then the larger number of failures ahead of us continues to grow because our communities are not getting less diverse, they're getting more diverse. We must be able to provide culturally and linguistically sensitive care. We must be able to understand cultural humility. We must be able to understand where there are barriers and disparities and be innovative about addressing those. And we must have partnerships to be able to do it. There isn't, I don't think I'm over speaking to say that there probably is no health system anywhere that can do all of this um, by itself. And you know, that's, that's complicated. Well, by, by many things. And we need to get past those complexities um, and be able to make those partnerships deliver on a promise that I believe most of us in this work really want to see. What I'm inspired by is for the first time in my career, I have a lot more partners at the table. I think, you know, we, always, we say around here, don't let a, pan, a, a pandemic go to waste. Um, and we, there have been a lot more people that have raised their hands to say, how can we help? I didn't know, or I knew, but I didn't know the severity of the problem until we were faced with, with COVID. We have started, we have something called Novant Health Reads here, where we are reading as a team together. Typically, we only read one book as a team. Um, we are reading five different books as a team that looks at social justice issues so that people can understand that it's not just about what happens within the medical venue of care that sets the foundation for what happens with these disparities. They are historic, they are current. And as a team, we wanna be able to understand better what the history and what our current role is in continuing to advance or fail to advance health equity. I'm excited that I belong to an organization that's willing to read those five books and that's willing to ask really hard questions around social injustices and how that connects back to health equity so that we can move forward with being able to ensure that we deliver on our mission statement and that we deliver on our vision in our community. And that I have a long list of people who now wanna partner in that place and ask how to be a stakeholder in that place gives me hope um, that, that that ocean, ocean oceans, um, we, can, we're, we, we can start to boil it you know, one ounce at a time and we have people who are really willing to do it together. Dr. Cedarstrom. I, I have very minimal to add to that because it's exactly the same concerns that I have. Um, my worry and fear is that people will think that it is, quote, okay to go back to normal when all this craziness is settled down and not use the opportunity to truly make lasting difference and lasting change. I, I worry that um, it will be another buzzword that people are trying to be politically correct and, and causing people to feel that there's something wrong with them just because they don't get it. So my, my fears are mostly around our culture in the United States uh, and our ability to embrace the reality of how we got here and what needs to happen in order to move forward. Um, 
But because of all the things that have happened so far, right, this is this is the silver lining. And the thing that makes me the most hopeful is I have less fear that that's our tomorrow because I know so many people and so many different players that normally would not have been in this space that are very excited to be in the space. And they're excited in a very cautious way, right? It's not like they're jumping all in. Let me just get it done. It's very much a, a reckoning with the reality of just sheer ignorance of understanding how we got here, what the problems are. Uh, and then just sort of this settling and knowing that they've got work to do and they're willing to start the steps that, that like intentional self-reflectiveness that many people have shown who otherwise had no reason to ever show an interest in this space gives me hope that, uh, that we won't fall into sort of those doldrums and we will keep moving and, and, and this wave won't fizzle out just because the pandemic gets under control or something else hits. And it seems like that other stuff is just stuff that, you know, we can get back to later. Uh, I think that uh, we have, I mean, we've got book clubs in the middle of white suburbia, Minnesota around how to be an anti-racist. I think that that's, that's in of itself a measure that the world is changing and trying to understand it a little better. And I'm excited that people are asking the right questions and trying to figure it out. The number one talk I've been given in the last year is on the history of racism in medicine, because I feel like we're starting to try and understand it better. Uh, and I think that that's the future of tomorrow. It's just knowledge and acceptance of truths and then using that to move us into a better space. Matt, I, I'll add one other thing that I've loved about what has evolved over time. Um, so we often talk about, when we think about health equity, we often talk about race and ethnicity and gender. You know, so, and typically when we talk about race and ethnicity, it's black and white. One of the things that I have seen evolve over time is that people are beginning to realize, I mean, COVID, COVID hit the world economically um, and impacted lots of people, people who weren't always historically marginalized. And so now suddenly they're in a position of being um, in a place where they don't have resources. And so people are beginning to see that health equity is around a broader definition than race and ethnicity. It's around your background, your education, um, your sexual orientation and gender identity. I think that's one of the things that NCQA is also highlighting is that we want to be able to gather data about all populations of, of people and again, understand who we leave behind and who we move forward. Hennepin's Chief Health Equity Officer, Dr. Neka Cedarstrom, alongside Novon Senior Vice President and Chief Health Equity Officer, Dr. Cherie Gregory. Inside Healthcare featured a number of guests discussing health equity, but recently expanded our talk beyond race. There are many historically underserved populations. So what about the LGBTQ plus community? Next up, we talk about gender equity with Dr. Kellen Baker, Executive Director of the Whitman Walker Institute here in Washington. Dr. Baker's career includes a focus on non-discrimination laws that help ensure the benefit of the Affordable Care Act reaches LGBTQ communities. Dr. Baker also served on the committee that recently established guidelines for appropriate gender labeling for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Before moving on, let's make sure we understand the term 
gender-affirming care. The World Health Organization defines gender-affirming care as a range of treatments, social, psychological, behavioral, and medical interventions designed to support and affirm an individual's gender identity when it conflicts with the gender they were assigned at birth. Here's a bit of our talk with Dr. Kellen Baker from episode 79. You said uh, everything determines health. Everything. Political, social, I forget the third one. Economic, political, economic. social, and economic determinants of health. Yeah. I, well, I get economic. Uh, talk to me a little bit about political. I mean, we can really see it happening now, right? This politicized, this politicized desire to regulate what people can do with their bodies in relation to reproductive rights, reproductive justice, that directly impacts people's health and well-being. People will die if abortion is not available, people have already died because abortion is getting more and more difficult to access. And so the decisions that politicians, policymakers, judges are making about the services and opportunities and benefits that are available to different groups of people, those are political decisions that then have direct influences on health and well-being the political angle on this and the political influence on this. It's exactly what you were talking about, folks telling you what you can and can't do or who you should or should not um, um, be that that still exists today. Very much so. In many ways, transitioning in Russia wasn't any harder than it would have been for me to transition here. This was almost 20 years ago. And at that point, the message was really clear. We have no idea who you are. We have no idea what you are. And we don't know what to do with you. And we're not going to help you. So it took a lot of community support. It took a lot of creative thinking. It took a lot of being willing to do whatever was necessary in order to access these really life-saving services, really life-saving and medically necessary procedures and, and supports. And it really makes me sad to see the direction that the conversation is going in now, because we have actually made a lot of progress over those 20 years in places like not just Whitman Walker, which has a lot of experience and expertise serving LGBTQ populations, but just broadly everywhere. I remember when I came back to the States in 2008 and I started looking for a provider who would give me hormone therapy. And the only provider I could find, he was very lovely, but, and I don't say this to complain about him, but he ran a women's fertility practice. Mm. And you can bet that no one was comfortable with me being the only bearded gentleman sitting in a room full of women who were all trying to figure out what on earth I was doing there if I wasn't accompanying someone. And that was in 2008. A lot has changed. I recently had a really wonderful experience. I had to go to a local healthcare organization, not Whitman Walker, um, but a, a different one to get a procedure that was looking for evidence of kidney cancer. And I was really worried because I was thinking this is going to be so unpleasant. I'm going to have to tell this person that I'm transgender and they're going to react and everybody's going to feel awkward and it's going to be terrible. And I'd worked myself up into a whole frenzy by the time I got there. And 
I talked with probably five or six providers and other staff along the way through this this screening procedure. And every single one of them was incredibly lovely. And they said, yes, we know you're transgender. That's fine. No, that doesn't change anything about how we're going to treat you. And it was almost as if they couldn't believe I was so worried, which is a wonderful place to be in. And I just think as we're having these conversations at the state level increasingly about restricting people's access to gender affirming care, trying to tell transgender people that we don't have the right to exist. We don't have the right to medical care. We don't have the right to go to school safely. We don't have the right to the correct ID documents. That's going to unravel or is aimed at unraveling so much of the progress that we have made. If that ain't bad enough, right? (laughs) Yeah. There's a whole nother side issue here with health as well because of young people and suicide rates, correct? So that that's a whole nother implication, right? Most definitely. And I could speak to that both from a personal and a professional perspective. If I hadn't been able to transition to be affirmed as I really am in my body and in myself, I would be dead. Absolutely. Um, and it is not an academic question for me to think about the relationship between gender affirming care and reducing suicide risk and making it possible for people to be happy in who we are and to lead full, healthy, productive lives. And the literature is quite clear. Gender affirming care that helps trans people be who we truly are helps improve mental health. It reduces depression. It reduces anxiety. It improves quality of life. It reduces suicidality. The list goes on and on and on. And this is true for adults. It's true for young people. It is also true that it is hard to be transgender. It is hard to be a transgender person in a transphobic world. So if we're looking for any particular medical intervention to fix everything for trans people, adults or kids, it's not going to happen because really the most important part of so much of this is the community support. Being able to access gender affirming medical care is medically necessary and essential. And also we need the people in our lives to see us and support us and to be with us, not trying to treat us as a problem to be legislated or stamped out of existence. The numbers of folks seeking uh, gender affirming care has skyrocketed, uh, especially since the Affordable Care Act. Why is that? Because it's available because we no longer have to hide, because we no longer have to tell lies in order to get providers to help us. Trans people have always been here. I can tell you, I transitioned before it was cool. We've always (laughs) been here. There are large communities of us everywhere, all around Mm -hmm. the world, but we had to hide. It was actually part of the medical standard of care that once you transitioned, you disappeared. You assimilated, quote unquote, into a quote unquote normal life into cisgender society and pretended like you weren't trans because that was thought to be the safest thing when there was so much animus, so much violence directed at transgender people. And there still is a lot of animus. There still is a lot of violence, um, particularly for transgender women, particularly for transgender people of color. But it is possible to be visible and to be proud openly of who we are than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so what we're seeing is not new cases, 
quote unquote cases. What we're seeing is new opportunities for people to be open about who they are and what they need. I think when people listen uh, to this, they want to know what can I do uh, to help and who in our industry um, is sort of the, the target for uh, making functional, practical change. Is there a plan? Hello, NCQA. <laughs> Wonderful to be in conversation with you today. Mm. I would say very much that folks working in the healthcare quality space have a huge role to play in understanding and addressing health disparities affecting LGBTQI plus populations. At their core, disparities are a quality problem. They are a problem of a lack of quality or an unevenness in quality of services, access, and outcomes. So if we are engaged in measuring and improving quality indicators, we need to make sure that we can see where LGBTQI plus patient populations are so that we can measure those disparities and then use the tools of measurement and use the driver of health equity, that goal of improving access, improving quality, improving outcomes for everyone, using that as a driver to push us towards making the changes that we need to in our systems. So it does start with measurement because it's very easy without knowing what the problem is. It's very easy to claim that there isn't a problem at all. And that is historically so much of what's happened in LGBT patient population health is simply saying, well, we don't really think that there are those that, that many of those people. And I'm using air quotes here, but increasingly we are seeing those the indications of not only how many LGBT people are in the United States, how many LGBT people are probably in any given hospital patient population or a provider practice, um, but also of the degree to which sexual orientation and gender identity are important determinants of health. They really do matter, both for providing the best care to individuals and for ensuring that populations are advancing equally towards that goal of health equity. What is it that is the first priority, the must to close equity for this population, for the LGBTQ plus population? The must is for people to care. The must is for people to see LGBTQI plus people as human beings, as people who are worthy of care, worthy of love, worthy of support, and yes, worthy of measurement worthy of having our stories told because at the end of the day, data are really just stories. They're stories about who we are, stories about what we've experienced and stories about what we need. And so offering more opportunities to collect and share those stories and to see systems change because of them, that I think is the ultimate goal. Gender equity expert, Dr. Kellen Baker. Finally, this episode, a segment on birth equity. This interview from 2019 marked the start of our health equity journey here on Inside Healthcare. Dr. Joya Creer Perry is founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative, a physician, policy guru, trainer, and speaker. Dr. Creer Perry champions health equity with a focus on maternal and child health. Dr. Creer 
Perry defines birth equity as the assurance of the conditions of optimal birth for all people with a willingness to address racial and social inequalities in a sustained effort. Here's a bit of our chat with her from episode 19 of Inside Healthcare. We recognize in this country that we're the only industrialized nation where we have more women dying in childbirth, right? Other countries who have as much money as we do, the actual numbers of women dying in childbirth is going down. In fact, we spend more per capita on health care than any other country in the world, right? So despite spending more money, despite the fact that everybody else is doing better, we're doing worse. And so when we started asking women, well, what's happening, right? Because the hospitals keep saying it's you. You're sick. You don't listen. You're, you're obese, right? So we keep blaming the patients. So we say, okay, well, moms, well, what is it then? Why? What's going on? Well, a lot of the times what they say is that they're not listening to us. When I go into the doctor, they don't hear what I say. When I go into the doctor, they're disrespectful. They don't follow through. When I ask them a question, they don't believe that my complaint is valid. So we know in a global context, there's a language called respectful care, right? So there's like a whole metric across the world around respectful care. What we haven't done in the U.S. is create that for the U.S. context, right? So in some countries, respectful care means disrespectful care is physical abuse or like um, t monetary. But here in the U.S., it w what would it mean for us to say, what is it like to not be listened to, right? And the importance of actually valuing what women say, that's disrespectful to be ignored. Mm -hmm. So we're really letting the mom's voices drive birth equity to make sure that when, they, when we make policy changes, they're not just based upon us problematizing women and saying women don't listen, but also saying, okay, hospital system, how are you gonna change your behaviors? Now, I imagine with those numbers you spoke of about how in the United States, mm -hmm. the mortality rate is rising. Mm -hmm. I imagine at some point that number was going down. It was. We, it, in fact, yeah, we, in fact, declared back in the early 90s that mm -hmm. we'd solve maternal mortality. That we, we did a public statement that the U.S. is the number one and we've solved it and it's over. And guess what we did? You know us. We stopped counting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so once we solved it, we said we didn't need to look at it again. So then the world kept counting their numbers. So then the world started looking at our numbers and saying, well, yours, you haven't really, we haven't released an official number for maternal death in the United States since 2007. So part of the work mm -hmm. we've been doing is really advocating for ensuring that states actually count the number of deaths. And you'll hear excuses like, well, it's only 700 to 900 women only, right? Mm -hmm. Considering how much money we spend on other things. And I'll tell you, globally, other countries um, count moms. In fact, I was on a panel at the UN and the health minister from Uganda was there, right? So they count moms, but they don't count babies because they have six babies per mom. So they're really worried about every baby, every mom making sure, because who's gonna, if one mom dies, that means six children that don't have a mother. In the US, we don't count mothers, we count babies. We know there are 23,465 infant deaths last year, to the, but we don't spend that kind of attention on women. Huh. Hmm. That is somewhat shocking to me, and yes. I work in healthcare. <laughs> right, exactly, and, and I think we spent a lot of time in the beginning of this conversation with the media getting this out there to right. saying, guys, you're not even counting women. Like, this is ridiculous. You have not released the number since 2007. The world is looking at you. They're flying me to Geneva to tell on you, guess what? We need to get it together here in the U.S. And folks at home, uh, we are videotaping this, mm -hmm. but really, it's a podcast. So <laughs> folks can't see the button on your shirt oh. that says... Black Mamas Matter. Yes. Um, but it sounds like All Mamas oh, Matter do. is pretty they important do. in is. counting, it is. too. It is. 
but I imagine that means there's some disparity for there sure, too. For sure. And Tell that's me the, about that. Yeah. So it's important for us to recognize we wouldn't be the worst in the industrialized world if it were only black mothers dying. So to be clear, although our organization focuses on black infant and maternal health because A, it's the highest number. So black women are dying at three to four times the rate of their white counterparts in the United States. Mm. So it's important for us to also recognize if we can fix it for black folks, imagine what will happen for everybody else, right? So if we're not listening to black women and we create a metric to make us have to listen to women in general, that means that some of the white mothers who are passing or who are not surviving childbirth will also have a better opportunity to thrive. So it starts, and we, you know it in CQA, we believe if you don't measure it, exactly. you can't improve it. Can you it. imagine? Right. So we're all for measuring, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and we want to make it as easy as possible right. for the folks who are measuring to measure exactly. and hand that information over mm-hmm. so we can address improvements. But why? Why especially black women? Yeah. Well, you know, we have to have an honest conversation in this country that we have not had around racism, classism, and gender oppression. So the truth is, we know that we have built structures that devalue. We were built on a structure that values people differently based upon their skin color. That is not... Um, racism is not a bad word. I'm not calling somebody a mean name. Mm-hmm. It's actually a current and historical fact that we build our systems to say one group should have and one group shouldn't. And so that ha- what happens when people enter healthcare is they might have had years of not having insurance, right? Because we'll say, well, you only deserve insurance when you're pregnant. And the majority, a lot of those women might be of color. Mm -hmm. And so then they've built up chronic disease for a while because they haven't had access to insurance. And now you come into pregnancy with hypertension that's been unaddressed for 10 years. You're going too late. You're going to be sicker. And then we blame the patient, right, for like not coming to the doctor and not participating, having as a structure, as a system, not invested in them in the first place. That discourages them. Yes. If not uh, just uh, complacency alone. Exactly. It, it actually discourages exactly. them, it sounds exactly. like. So, th- so how revolutionary would it be for us to live up to our American ideal? How revolutionary would it be for us to say, we believe all people have value. We're going to invest in everybody. So if we know that people need to be seen when they come to the hospital and heard and listened to, and that we are not listening to women, I mean, think of Serena Williams. Here she is, the one of the healthiest women in the world, mm-hmm. and yet she was wasn't listened to. She had to fight for her own health. She had to fight for her own body to survive a pregnancy because she said, I'm having a thromboembolic event. They were like, you don't know what that means. Why wouldn't she know? So that's the level of not listening. She'd had a um, PE before. Mm-hmm. And she this knows is not it. a person suffering sort of from, <laughs> right. you know, the the social determinants. Exactly. I mean, she's got the money she and does. she's got the education. But and she the- was still ignored and she had to fight for herself. And so that's the thing that we have to change. This idea that you can't, patients aren't believed or not listened to. And so black women are accustomed to that. We have data that shows we people, patients, doctors believe black women don't feel pain as much as white women. As if having more melanin um, production makes your pain tolerance different, right? And we have a history of that coming from the creation of obstetrics and gynecology from the founding father who traveled across the country doing experiments on black women who were enslaved without anesthesia, and he would report, well, they don't feel pain. So it's part of how we think about health. That has to change. We know from the civil rights movement, we can change policies and metrics, but if we don't change the culture of believing and listening into people, you will desegregate schools, desegregate hospitals by law, but they will functionally still be segregated. So part of our work around this culture shift and having podcasts and talking is to say, let's honestly talk about racism. Let's honestly talk about a hierarchy of human value and that we can stop doing that because we're all being harmed by that. But we have to at some point Quit talking. <laughs> that's true. And take action. We do, right? and that's where it's really important to have measures and measures and count- that's accountability. The start. That's the start. And then after that, mm-hmm. if I'm a healthcare yep. 
worker Mm -hmm. who listens to this. We get lots of listeners from sort of the insurance background Mm -hmm. and a great deal from the primary care background. Yes, yes. I think the primary care place is probably where where, uh, there is a need. Yes. So if I'm a healthcare worker who works in a primary care practice, what can I do? You know, we are so excited because primary care is so important to maternal health. We focus so much on what happens in labor and delivery as if people just show up after being alive for 28 years and the only thing that matters is that 12 hours of labor delivery when their primary care prior to that was so important. So how strong would it be to have primary care providers working with us around access to payment reform for primary care, around having ensuring that people have access to a provider even when they're not pregnant because their life course for their maternal health starts when they are children in pediatric care and adolescent care and young adult care. So we are really allies in this work with our um, with our younger, with our folks who are doing primary care. And, and they're undervalued as well, right? They don't get the payment that they need. They don't have the resources that they need to provide primary care. And that feeds into us not having access to great maternity care. So it's, it's not an either or, it's not pie. It's important for us to think of as a primary care doctor, working around and showing how important maternal health is to your work, right? Now we have all this buzz around it. We need them too, right? And we also, there's concrete ways to work on bias, right? I do a lot of implicit bias trainings. I have bias that I work on. So Mm -hmm. I do things like engage, lean into my bias, make sure that I can individualize, make sure that I can find ways to decrease my stereotypes. If you know, if you take the implicit association test and you see that you have a bias, you can do those same things as well, right? So if your bias is against young black patients, it's an opportunity to start spending more time with them, individualizing with them, stereotype replacement. So those are some strategies. It's about catching yourself it in, is. in some ways and it reminding is. yourself. That we're all, like, we've been taught narratives just, just aren't true. Right. Right. We come with them. We come with them. And in this case, uh, obstetricians. Yes. Come with this. Yes, they, they believe. That is nutty. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, that's nutty that they think somehow you... <laughs> That people today really believe somehow you don't suffer pain the same I way. I know. I do. Yeah. In fact, probably better. Than <laughs> well, that, I do. Well, honestly, I've never probably, given birth. <laughs> probably, honestly, that's probably why the stigma exists, right? Because men. <laughs> well, see, I wasn't going to say that. But we can't experience it. <laughs> Wait, right. That's right. very true. So even some of the like the rules around how we decide on postpartum care. We have a six-week postpartum visit. We've had that for a hundred years in obstetrics, based upon no data. We have no, so women need things beside birth control. So that's what we do mostly at the postpartum visit. We, and we examine you to make sure that you are prepared for taking birth control and you can resume normal activities. Think of all the other things, emotional support, breastfeeding support, right. um, just all the, none of that is addressed, right? And so we built a system based upon the beliefs of folks 100 years ago and what they thought about women and what they thought about black folks. Imagine mm-hmm. how broken that has to be based upon our current knowledge around equality for women, equality for people of color. And so when we're really rethinking, how would we build a system that really valued everybody? You would say, I need to actually pay for more than one visit six weeks later. And 60% of the deaths from maternal mortality happen postpartum. So if we're only seeing you six weeks later, we're missing a whole bunch of things that happen as far as your hemp bleeding, if you have a headache, all those kinds of things. Hmm. What needs to change? Yes. uh, And who needs to change it? Yes, yes. So we as a healthcare system have to fundamentally we think about how we got here, right? Like we have been fighting each other and fighting like the doctors, fighting the midwives, fighting the doulas. And really as a system, we're all in this together. So first we have to reframe and change and think we need each other to do this work together. Um, And that we value people and their voices very 
that they are, they, people can make their own healthcare decisions. And so the way we think about patient interaction has to change, that we're not here as the all authoritarian. We need a team of folks to work together. We can't do everything as a doctor by ourselves. I've never thought that, but healthcare in general has always been thinking that. And so reframing all of that is really important. We need accountability. So things like NCQA, these are really important for this because when you have quality measures, when you say, I value respectful care, as a measure, how transformative can that be, right? Because that means people are um, aspiring to be respectful, and that's part of their work. So we have to have accurate counting, and they're starting to work on that as well. And so um, at CDC, uh, there was some funding passed through legislation that I was um, blessed to be able to testify in front of Congress around to give funding to states to count more accurately their um, maternal deaths. So that's gonna come, probably it'll become um, really important for us once we get those numbers to really couch them or frame them, understanding the impact of social determinants on mom's lives. And it's not just the interaction in the hospital, but transportation, housing, food deserts, like all those things matter when it comes to your maternal health. And then how will we build a structure where healthcare, we don't expect the doctor to fix all of their health, but we want the entire system to change so we can have access to all the things to thrive. Dr. Jirai Career-Perry of the National Birth Equity Collaborative speaking to us back in 2019. Well, you know, our website is bountiful in terms of content to inform and inspire you. Why don't you take an hour and go through the site, read some articles from our blog, discover certification programs that cover everything from how to run your facility to monitoring assurance for your outpatient medical programs. And if you're looking for training insights or just to expand your healthcare horizons, sign up for our virtual webinars. But folks are getting excited about our brand new in-person event this coming fall. The NCQA Health Innovation Summit is at the Marriott Marquis Hotel here in Washington, starting on Halloween. Festive. The four-day event will feature all you've come to expect at NCQA. Events, great panels, great content, great networking, and some good fun. Whether you want to be a guest, a speaker, or a sponsor, check out all the details at ncqasummit.com. And we'll see you on Halloween. We also wanted to remind you, we, the producers of this show, are open to your thoughts, suggestions, comments, and questions. Send them to us at communications at ncqa.org. Here's our question of the week. What's one thing your organization is doing to bridge the historic gaps in health equity? Drop us a line on your thoughts. Again, communications at ncqa.org. So that's it for this time. We're here every other Wednesday, so tune in. On behalf of producer-writer Dave Smaller and the rest of the NCQA communications team, thanks for being here. I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device, through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.